Well, good morning again, church. Glad that you're here this morning. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. We are in chapter 5 this morning, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and we'll get Stuart to bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16 this morning. Matthew records Jesus' words for us, starting in verse 13. We read Jesus saying, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The title of my message this morning is Being a Salty Light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, this opportunity to gather together, knowing, Lord God, that you are here in our midst. Your Holy Spirit's desire is to teach us, to instruct us in all things, Lord, pertaining to our life with you. Lord, we pray that we would have open ears to receive all that you have for us. Lord, that we would not look at your word as going, and this would be good for someone else at which they were here. But Lord, we would look at it as to what you would have me here this morning, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together as a church, the sweet time of fellowship, the sweet time of worship. We also pray, Lord, if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again yet. They, they don't know what it means to have their sin forgiven and the guilt taken away. Lord, especially touch their heart today, we pray, and give them just the understanding of what it means to have a Savior and to be free with you and the chains being broken in their lives. Thank you for this time, Lord. We pray your blessing on it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, with the subject of salt and light, by way of introduction, I was trying to think of a funny story or something to start the study with, and so I just I came up with a few salt and light jokes. So here they go. My teacher today threw sodium chloride at me. I said, that's a salt. Get it? That's a salt. Okay. All right. They get worse. They don't get better. So just so you know. Just so you know. How did Noah see in the dark? By floodlights. Get it? Floodlights. One more. And I like this one. Doesn't mean anything to you guys. (laughs) A father is reading a Bible study to his young son. He read, The man named Lot was warned to take his wife and flee out of the city. But his wife looked back and was turned to salt. His son asked, What happened to the flea? Wife and flee out of the city. Not really a salt joke, but I thought it was funny. Okay. Jesus here, (laughs) it's pretty rough, huh? (laughs) Jesus here uses two word pictures, salt and light. Why salt? Why light? Because the world is dark and the world is corrupt. The world needs light because it's dark and the world needs salt because it's corrupt. We live in a dark time culturally today. 
In a span of about 14 hours between Friday afternoon and early Saturday morning, 25 people were shot in Chicago, including a three-year-old boy who was among seven wounded in a single attack. This is just last Friday, yesterday morning. On August 6th, in one weekend, 66 people were shot, 12 fatally. And this is Chicago. This is in the United States. I think of the owner of the Masterpiece Cake Shop in Colorado. He had won a 7-2 victory decision in the Supreme Court over not making a wedding cake for same-sex couple. But almost at the same time he won the victory, a transgender attorney in Colorado asked him to make a cake celebrating his transgenderism. He's now back in court all over again. Ever since the legalization of marijuana in Colorado, there has been more marijuana in schools than teachers and administrators ever feared. Listen, the Bible is really clear on this one. The world in which we live in is not going to get better. It's going to get worse. We're going to go from wars to to greater wars, from, from immorality to greater immoralities. We're going to go from perversion to greater perversions. It's a downward spiral, not upward. And, and, and there's, there's Christians out there today who say, well, you know, you're right. And so we just want to withdraw. You know, the world is getting worse and worse. So we need to build our own little Christian community, our own little Christian city. And we'll drive our, our Christian cars and we'll live in our Christian houses and we'll have Christian dogs and Christian cats. And maybe not cats, okay. <laughs> but we'll be in our own little world, you know, our own culture. Listen, that's not the solution. We need to get out in the world if we're going to make a difference. I mean, volunteer to coach your kid's soccer team. Get involved in the PTA. Join a bowling league. You know, Don't retreat from the world. Engage with it with the deliberate attempt of being a witness for Jesus Christ. I like what Pastor Greg Gloria said. The objective of, a, of believers is not to isolate, but to infiltrate. Not to evade, but to invade. We need to impact culture without being compromised by it. Now, that's a tricky balance in doing that. But as a result, I, I can't think of a better time for us to be in the Gospel of Matthew than right now, especially what we're looking at with the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus takes his disciples aside and shares with them how to live as light in a dark world, how to live as salt in a corrupt world. Now, remember, we looked at last week in verses 1 through 12, what is known as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes really are contrary and opposite to the world's way of thinking. We know that. See, when Jesus said in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The world says, blessed are the rich, for theirs is the kingdom of this world. When Jesus says in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The world says, blessed are those who never cry, never reveal any emotion. They don't need any comfort because they don't want to show any need. But you see, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, what we see is true righteousness. Not externally by what people think righteousness is, but internally, on the inside, the true condition of the Christian man and woman's heart. Those that truly want to live up with this kind of attitude. That's why the only way that this can be accomplished is by being a disciple of Jesus Christ. In fact, we get the word disciple from the word discipline. So in order to have these, these beatitudes in our lives, you're going to actually have to take the time to discipline yourself to this kind of thinking. Because this is supernatural. And the way that we live is, is very natural. But if we want to live supernaturally, it takes discipline. Now we also know in our previous studies that Jesus defined what his true disciples would be like when he used the phrase, fishers of men. That was in Matthew 4, verse 19. Fishers of men. Jesus was saying to his disciples, I'm going to make you fishers of men, but how? 
Well, that's where it brings us to this morning. Within these verses, we get a clear picture of how these disciples are going to be the kind of witnesses that Jesus has called them to be. And he uses the illustration of salt and light. And those are two points this morning, salt and light, if you're taking notes. One pastor put it this way, as Christians, our job is to sprinkle and twinkle. I thought that was funny. <laughs> Let's look at salt first. Look at, look at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, there's a, a lot of salt analogies, and maybe you've heard them through over the years, but, but I think it's good, since we're here in this section of Scripture, to go over a few of them. And I want to look at four in particular. Four things that salt does. Salt, number one, preserves. Number two, it purifies. Number three, it produces thirst. And number four, it provides flavor. Number one, salt preserves. I think the, the time on which we're living, and we really don't uh, have that, that great of a... Uh, impact of what a great illustration that this really was. The reason being is we use salt in a very limited sense today compared to the way they used it back during the Roman uh, soldiers in times and in that time. In fact, the Roman soldiers were often paid in salt as part of their wages. Salt was a valuable commodity. It was used as a preservative because they didn't have, you know, your whirlpool side-by-side refrigerator freezer with the ice machine and all that in there. They, they had to use salt to preserve the meat. You'd pack it in salt. So Jesus uses the term in the same way, but calling his disciples to be a preservative to the world around them. He's saying, you are being the preserving uh, influence to the world in which you live. Now, how does that work practically for us? Perhaps one of the guys at work says, well, man, I heard this funny story the other day. You want to hear it? All you have to say is, sure, I love clean jokes. I mean, that ought to put a stop right to it. Because you're being a preservative. You're a representative of Jesus Christ. In the same way, true Christianity, wherever it has gone, has been the preserving influence in that society. Whenever there's been a strong Christian emphasis and a strong Christian voice, that society has, has, it is being preserved and maintained. But when the Christian voice begins to diminish, that society begins to deteriorate. I mean, just look at Europe today. I mean, the way that has gone. Look at the United States. I mean, it was formed on the principles of Christianity. Tremendous, heavy Christian influence in forming the foundation of our nation. Written into the very Constitution were those safeguards to protect our religious freedoms. We have the freedom to worship freely here, to assemble now, because the Christian influence was so strong, and we weren't afraid to say one nation under God. But man, through the years, it's been attacked, and the Christian voice has been weakened because the church has failed to be that salt, to be that preservative. In fact, it's worse when the church then becomes the source of the decay. And we've seen that, the accepting of all sorts of sexual immorality within the church, even ordaining those that are caught up in sexual immorality. That's certainly not preventing the decay in our world. That's what I would call spoiled meat, wound meat. According to one poll, by modest estimation, more than a quarter of the entire population of the United States have professed to have an evangelical conversion experience. So if one quarter of the 325.7 million people in America are truly born again, Where's the evidence? William Iverson Riley wrote that a pound of meat would surely be affected by a quarter pound of salt. If this is real Christianity, the salt of the earth, where is the effect of which Jesus spoke? You see, if you think, that, that, that if you think like the world, 
and you act like the world, then our Lord's word, word should sting like pouring salt on an open wound. And that's the second point in which salt does. Salt purifies. It heals. And, and, and I think that's a good thing about salt, that it heals wounds. As we allow God's word to, to purify us, we can become useful again. See, another, another use for salt is that healing process. You know, if you've ever had a canker sore, you know, or you have sore throat, you know, your mom would say, well, go gargle with salt. You know, gargle with salt. It's just nasty, but it's supposed to help in the healing process. Tilt the germs that are there so healing can take place. In the same way, we as believers, as Christians, we're called to, to help heal other people's wounds. To go to those that are brokenhearted and down and distressed and, and, and bring them the, the, the hope and, and the healing that God has given to us. We're called to heal the wounds and help them get on the right path. In fact, that was another use for salt in those days was to, to make a path across the ground to get to a particular destination. And what they would do is they, in those days they would get the salt and they would put it back on the, on the back of their pickup truck. And I uh, just want to make sure you're listening. Back of their donkey's cart. And then they'd run through this particular chosen path and they would salt would get down on the ground there. And when the rain would come, it would then, you know, burn that, the ground so that there was a path to get to that destination. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples here and us. Be salt to the earth. Let them see the path that you're on. Let them see the ground that you're moving on. Let them follow behind you because the path that you're on is leading to eternal life. That brings us to our third analogy, salt analogy. Salt makes you thirsty. And if you've ever had something that was really, really salty to eat, you're going to get thirsty really, really fast. A little bit of salt goes a long way. Now, they know this at movie theaters, of course. You know, we went to the movies last week, and, and we wanted to see uh, the Winnie, okay, we went to the Winnie the Pooh movie, okay, it was, it was, I liked it, okay, it was a good movie. But we get there, and, and Lisa says, oh, let's go get some popcorn. So you go to get the popcorn, and, and they have two sizes. One is a Dixie cup size, and the other one is the size of a trash can, okay? So I get the bigger one because it's a bigger deal. But I don't usually buy popcorn because I know if I do, I'm going to eat it all. And because I know if I eat it all, I know that I'm going to be really, really thirsty. And, 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 uh, and so I, I you know what at the time I purchased a drink. So, and, and again, drinks are the same way. You get a thimbleful cup or, or a gallon-sized cup. So I, naturally I get the gallon-sized cup because I got a you know, trash can size full of popcorn there. So you get down in your seat and, and you, know, you get about halfway through the movie and you finish off the popcorn and you drink a gallon of, of, of liquid and... Right in the most important part of the movie, you gotta leave. Right when Pooh was gonna save the day, I had to go out and, 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 and I skipped, you know, missed, at least had to tell me what happened and all. All that to say, salt stimulates thirst. And guess what? When you're walking with Jesus, you will stimulate in others a thirst for God. You've heard the saying, you can't bring a horse to water, but you can, you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. I'm certain that if you place a couple salt tablets in the cheek of a horse, you better get out of the way because it's going to be heading for that water and it's going to be all over you. Christians ought to make the world thirsty for the water of life. Thirsty for the way of Christ. Thirsty for righteousness and holiness and goodness. Thirsty for the real thing. You know, years ago, Coke had their saying, Coke is the real thing. Well, Christ is the real thing. He's the real joy. He's the real peace. He's the real love. The only real thing that can fill empty hearts that can satisfy empty souls. And as salt of the earth, we should be making those around us thirsty for the living water of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a right way 
and a wrong way to go about it. And this brings us to our fourth salt analogy. Salt provides flavor. You know, we know there's a right way and a wrong way to salt your food. My, my father-in-law, you can put a, a plate in front of him to eat, and before you even taste it, he's putting salt on it. I know it needs salt. You know, it's like that. Maybe you've been in a restaurant, and you go to put salt on your food, and, and some kid unscrewed the cap, and you got salt all over your food. Have you ever noticed that if you don't pour enough salt on it, it it's not right either? In the same way, as we are being salt to those around us, you're tacked. And the way you pour yourself out is very, very important. Do you know that, that not enough is, is not going to change the flavor or taste of anyone else's life around you? And too much can spoil the flavor that they're, they're attempting to taste. And I would think there's one characteristic that I would say that, that, that you could fault the church on, and that would be this particular fault. That is not knowing how much salt to pour out on the non-believing world around them. In other words, when we are being salt and sharing faith, we need to use tact. And I would say this, we need to speak in a language that they understand. A lot of time, we as believers, we get frustrated because it doesn't seem like people are listening to us. You share with them your faith and they're just kind of staring at you and you're going, Man, I don't know why they're not getting that. They're looking like, like you sound like someone from a different planet. I mean, and, and you mean, maybe they say, well, I just don't know why my evangelism isn't more effective. Maybe someone observes or listening to you share with someone else and, and they kind of know why it's not being effective because you say, you, non-believer, bound for hell. Yeah, uncircumcised Philistine. Come here a second. Here's the problem with you. You're sinful, you're wicked, you're unregenerate person. You need to repent and you need to believe and you need to be justified and sanctified and join the body of Christ and be washed in the blood. What? They, say, they look at you. What? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't use biblical terminology, but I'm saying that that doesn't necessarily make sense to a biblically illiterate culture. And boy, we have a biblically illiterate culture today. I mean, if you go to another nation that, that speaks another language, you have to speak to the people through an interpreter or, or you have to learn the language yourself. And in the same way, if we want to engage biblically, uh, to engage a biblically illiterate culture, we have to break it down to them in terms that they understand. We can't assume they understand any of this. All they heard you say was they needed to get washed in blood, and that was it. It freaked them out. We need to explain things to them. And then take the time to listen to their responses, to, to hear where they're coming from, to get a kind of a background on where they're at. Break it down to them, define your terms as you go, speak the language they understand, and listen to where that's so you can respond biblically. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 9.22 where he says, I try to find common ground with everyone so I might bring them to Christ. One commentator put Paul's words this way. He says, I have voluntarily become a servant to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people, religious, non-religious, meticulous moralists, loose-living immoralists, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever. I like that. And it's right. I mean, the greatest example of this was Jesus himself. Think of the woman at the well. Jesus was salty when he engaged with this loose-living, immoralist woman, making her thirsty for the things of God. Here was a woman who was married five times and, and, and living with a, a man at the present. He didn't blow her out of the water. He didn't just attack her and condemn her. He approached her in a way that she could understand, appealed to her inner spiritual thirst, and then brought to her the solution that she needed. But then Jesus sat down with Nicodemus. John chapter 3. Different man, different, different type of situation. A religious man, you could describe him as the meticulous moralist. Man who lived by the rules. 
And Jesus says to him, you must be born again if you want to enter the kingdom of God. But the one thing that Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and the woman at the well in John chapter 4 had in common was they both needed Jesus, immoral and moral alike. And, And that's what we see in our world today. See, they're both without God. And Jesus adapted to that situation and brought the gospel to them. He spoke in a language that they could understand. And I might add this, and in, in, in when you're being sought, when you're sharing your faith, don't be so ready to tell them everything you know from the Bible. You know, as much as you're prepared just to listen to their questions. Because we can overwhelm them with information as well. well you'll be much, much more effective if you listen to where they're coming from and questions they may have, and, and then choose your words wisely in answering them. To the world, they look at, at all of us Christians, they, they've lumped us into one box. We're hypocritical, self-righteous, and judgmental. And sadly, because there are many like that, it's left a bad taste in their mouth. It's been said that there's two reasons why most unbelievers refuse to trust in Jesus. First, they've never met a Christian. And second, they have met a Christian. We have an influence. Now, with some of us, it's positive. With others, it's negative. But listen, when the church is faithful, when the, when the Christian is truly Christ-like, the aroma and the taste should be pleasant. I mean, do you know of believers, maybe certain Christians, that when you get around them, it makes you want to live a godlier life? You go, oh, man, these guys, man, they're there, man. Look at their marriage. Man, man look, look at the way he treats his wife. Look at the way she honors her husband, man. Uh, look at the way they share their faith like that. Oh, man, I want to do what they do. Man, if someone says that about you, that means you're doing your job because you're stimulating in, in others a thirst for Christ. And the greatest compliment a, a, a non-believer can pay to a believer is when they come up to you and they say, well, well, what is it that, that makes you live this way? I see the way you love your wife, the way you treat her, the way you love your husband. I see that you're smiling in the face of adversity. I want what you have. What a great compliment. But know this. We cannot be an influence for purity in the world if we are compromised in our own purity. We cannot sting the world's conscience if we go against our own. We cannot, you know, stimulate spiritual thirst in others if we've lost our own. We cannot be used by God to stop the corruption of sin in others if it's corrupted us. If so, we're unsalty, which according to Jesus is not good. Look at verse 13. If the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Heavy-duty words from Jesus Christ about an unsalty Christian. Man, a Christian, we need to have zest, zing, you know, edge, you know, just that, that joy of the Lord just, just flowing through us. We're not to be, you know, since I watched Pooh, you know, not to be Eeyore, you know, yeah, I'm a Christian, you know, laid back, you know, you know. We're to be salt. Stopping the spread of evil, bringing the healing message of the gospel, producing thirst in people's life, making a difference. If not, you know, Jesus says, you know, what are we good for? You know, it's like we're lukewarm coffee, you know, or uncarbonated Coke, or worse yet, decaf coffee. And my doctor says I have to limit my caffeine because it affects my heart. You know how hard it is to go to a coffee shop and order decaf coffee and pay the regular coffee price for it? In fact, a really good coffee shop, they don't even serve decaf coffee because they know all it is is brown water. They don't even serve it. I mean, that's what an uncarbonated Christian is. They're a decaf disciple, if you will. A person who's not living the life that God has called us to live. 
Jesus says, if you're not making a difference, what good are you? Once salt loses its flavor, it's not even good for salt. For us to be salt, if we lose our saltiness, we're not even good for anything. Now, this should remind us to make sure that there's some saltiness in our lives. That I don't find myself week after week not affecting anybody's life. See, in far too many churches today, there's a new brand of Christianity that, that, that doesn't offend anyone, that's just non-irritating, without any effect. Everything is sweet, sweet, sweet. No talk of sin, no talk of repentance, no talk of, of walking in holiness. Listen, Jesus didn't call us to be the sugar of the world. He called us to be the salt of the earth. But he's also called us to be the light of the world. And that brings us to our second point, light. Look at verses 14 through 16. Jesus puts it this way. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Have you ever reached for something in the dark thinking it was one thing and it ended up being something else? Years ago, when I worked in the postal service, I was getting ready for the morning. The lights were off and, and uh, you know, working with rubber bands. I'm putting my sweater on and, and I put it on and I feel this thing on my wrist. And, and I think it's a rubber band. It's probably in my sweater. It got messed up in there. And so I go to grab it to move it. And suddenly that rubber band was in a rubber band and moved. And so, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I tossed it, took the sweater off, turned the light on. And, and in the high desert where we're living, they have these, uh, they're called vinegaroon spiders. And they're about... This big, and they look like scorpions. I mean, they, they actually have this little tail-like thing, and, and uh, a man had scared the daylights out of me, and the, I'm seeing it kill the thing. But. <laughs> See, light reveals things, doesn't it? The world needs light because it's getting darker every day. Let me tell you, there's a difference between salt and light as well. Salt is, is hidden, but light is revealed. Salt works secretly, light works openly. Salt works on the inside, light comes from the outside. One author put it this way, if salt is the indirect influence of the gospel to the world, the light is the full visible proclamation. I like that. Salt can stop corruption, but it can't make corruption go away. Light, on the other hand, can make the darkness flee. Light's more positive. Not only reveals what is false and wrong, but it produces that which is righteous and true. Let me give you a couple of verses about that. David wrote in Psalm 36, verse 9, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Paul put it this way, in, or, or David, again, in Psalm 119, verse 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And then David put it, or Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For it is the God who commanded light to shine under the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, we're to let the light of Jesus Christ in our life shine before men. To be that reflection of Jesus so that when they look at us, they see Jesus. I think by far here, once again, in this particular illustration, we've lost the sight of the fact of how important light can be. Because we're so accustomed to it today. We take for granted uh, the light that we have in this age in which we live. You know, you come to church this morning and, and you know, you know you, the lights are on so you can read our Bibles. And after worship, we turn the lights on you can see, see the words in your Bible. But let's go back a couple thousand years when Jesus was doing this teaching. It's a lot harder to get a light to read. In those days, not like today, you just didn't light up a room for the sake of lighting up a room. Oh, let's turn the light on there. Just It looks pretty. 
No, you, you had a, a purpose. I know if you're a dad and you're like me, you go walking through your house, you're turning off the lights. Why is that light on? Who, who turned the light? No one's in this room. You turn it off. But in those days, you just didn't light an oil lamp and, and stick it in a room and walk out and say, oh, that room looks great. Doesn't that look pretty? No, it was, it was for a specific purpose. You lit a room for a purpose to either write or read or talk or get together. So we are to be a light with a purpose to see people come to Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. That's the reason behind it. Now here's the deal. When you're living for Jesus Christ, your very presence is going to bother other people because you're reflecting the light of Jesus in a very dark world. You don't even need to say anything oftentimes. They just know. I mean, to to see, here's that guy, man, he's always happy and always, you know, you don't say two words. You see, you're not doing anything but living for Jesus. And as a result, people are going to freak out. Listen, don't let that bother you. Jesus said it would be that way. John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, he said, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. We're living in a culture that is very comfortable in the darkness they're living in. They've become accustomed to the dark. There's a story found of a, of a castle-like prison in Paris known as the Bastille that was de- to be destroyed in 1789. And there was a prisoner there who had been confined in this dark, dingy dungeon for many, many years who was brought out. But instead of welcoming his new freedom as he stood in the brilliant sunshine, he begged them to take him back into the prison again because his eyes could not endure the brightness of the sun. His only desire was to die in that murky dungeon where he had been captive for so long. And that's how a lot of people are today. They want to keep on living in this darkness. And Jesus tells us the reason people don't believe is they don't want their sin exposed. They don't want to acknowledge their shortcoming. They don't want the light of Jesus shining in their eyes. And let me tell you, the more godly you are, the more you're living for Jesus Christ, the more irritating you are to the non-believer. There's a few things that are, that are harder to put up with than a good example. And when you, just, when you just live it, it really gets people's attention. So light not only exposes what is hidden in the darkness, but light shows the way out. It shows them the way to Jesus Christ. And we need to keep letting our light shine brightly. As the old Motel 6 slogan was, you know, we'll keep the light on for you. We need to do that. Now I want you to look at verses 13 and 14 and... Get your pen or pencil out because I'm going to ask you to circle a word. It's a word, you. Jesus says, you, circle that, are the salt of the earth. You, circle that again, you are the light of the world. Now, why is that important? Because the, in the original language, this can be translated, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. You and you alone. Boy, when you, when you look at it from that perspective, it brings up, you know, little question, you know, like this. Well, what if every Christian lived exactly like you? What kind of world would we live if every believer behaved just like you did? How many people would be attracted to or turned off by the gospel? What kind of, of, of general opinion do you think people would have of Christianity if you were the sole representative? What if, what if the, all the church was just like you? What if everybody worshipped just like you worship? I mean, would, would the church fall silent as we stood as observers, or would we be a singing, rejoicing church? What if, if the church all prayed as diligently as you prayed? Would we be a praying church? What if the church all studied and knew the Word of God like you know? Would we be a literate, or illiterate church biblically? 
What if all the church gave financially as faithfully as you do? Would we have the resources we need? Or would we have very little to work with? What if everyone shared the gospel as faithfully as you share the gospel? Would we have a world hearing about Jesus? Or would we have a world that knows very little about him? This is convicting to me. But guess what? You are, and I are, I are, I am the significant, I are the significant part of the church. And you and I alone are, are the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world, or reflecting Jesus Christ. But see, you're not only the light, but you may be the only light in your world. You're not only salt, but you may be the only salt in your, uh, your you know, realm of friends and, and, and acquaintances. See, among your friends and, and your family and among your co-workers and among your neighbors, you may be the only representation of Jesus Christ that they'll ever see. So they're going to evaluate the whole Christian idea of Christianity on the basis of what they see in you. And they're going to form an opinion about what they think about God based on you. That's why Jesus uses the phrase, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. You are to be a useful Christian, a light in a dark world. So don't hide that light. Be a bright light. Shine in a way that other people actually see the light and are drawn to it. That's why he says in verse 15, Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Jesus is saying no one in their right mind is going to put a light under a basket. I suppose if they did, it would be a first century lava lamp. But, but I think as we look at the fact of this light being used as an illustration for Christians, we need to ask ourselves, you know, what wattage are we? What wattage are you? Are you a little night light, a little 10 watt, you know, just in the corner, you know, barely lights up a room? Or are you like a 200 watt, you know, light, light up the whole room? I mean, if you walk into a room with a little 10-watt light nightlight on and you turn on a 200-watt light bulb, guess what? You're not going to see the little 10-watt anymore. And, and, and when you walk into a room, do people say, that's a Christian. I can see his light shining. Are you that night light in some dark corner barely lit? The fascinating thing I read is that when you increase the wattage on a bulb, you also increase the size of the base. You know, he's got a little base for these little light lights and, and small little bases. And, and, and if you've ever looked at the street lights and they got these big, huge bases, you know, they're mercury incandescent lights and huge base. Why? Well, because it's sucking a lot of power to shine a real light bright. So I think the application here is pretty bright. Get it? We, we can really see in this application here. If you want to shine brightly, you need to stay plugged into the power source, Jesus Christ. We need to be plugged into God's Word. We need to stay plugged in and fellowship one with another. So that when we leave this place this morning, people will say, where have you been? Why are you shining so brightly? What's going on? Because you've been plugged into the power. So if you spent time in the presence of the Lord, like Moses coming down from the mountain, and this kind of glory shining on his face, it was so bright, Moses had to put a veil over his face because the people were afraid. That's the way it should be. But even for Moses, that, that shine began to diminish. And I think of, you know, the re- rechargeable battery flashlights. You know, the, the deader the battery gets, the dimmer that light gets. The more charged up, the brighter. We need to stay charged up. Finally, how does Jesus say that we're supposed to shine our lights? By doing good deeds. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Your good works. They don't see the glow. They don't see the shine. What do they see? They see your good works. And that's interesting to me because when we get to chapter 6, 
Jesus is going to tell us uh, things that we are not supposed to do before men. When you tithe, when you pray, you know, don't stand on the corner for everyone to see, you know, uh, that you're praying now. Jesus is saying there that, that our motive behind what we do shouldn't be to be seen before men. But here Jesus is saying, let our light so shine through the good works that we do, not to bring attention to ourselves, but to bring attention to God. You know what amazes me about Jesus and his ministry? That every time he did a miracle, people saw it and the scripture says that they glorified God. They didn't ask Jesus to pose for a picture. They didn't, didn't, you know, give him keys to the city. They didn't invite him to go on a speaking tour. They just glorified God, the Father. There was a, a, a godly Scottish minister by the name of Robert Murray McShane from the 1800s. Died when he was 29 years old. A powerful uh, man of God. It was said about him that his life was such that people were known to fall to their knees and accept Christ as Savior just looking at him. Do people sense the closeness to the Lord when they hang out with you? If you're making a difference in this world by being salt and light, then people will take notice. Listen, our our nation is not going to turn around morally on its own. Politics is not going to bring a solution to our problems. The world is getting darker and darker. Man cannot fix this. Technology is not going to fix this. Philosophy is not going to fix this. Donald Trump is not going to fix this. The only thing that can turn America around is a spiritual awakening, a revival. And that's what we need to be praying for, for America to turn back to God, because that alone will bring about a moral change. A.W. Tozer said, and I quote, Revival is that which affects the moral climate of a community. If there's revival in our hearts, it's going to affect those around us. You and you alone can make a difference. We have a strategic part to play. I heard it once said, I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And what I can do, I ought to do. And what I ought to do, by the grace of God, I will do. You say, well, I don't know. What can one person do? Let me tell you, one person can do a lot. I think of the, the woman named Esther, uh, who saved a nation. Now, she would have you know, not been a, the first woman a lot of people might have thought of to save a nation. She was a winner of a beauty contest that... that then she became a queen as a result of, but there she was put, put in this uh, place of influence and power. She discovered that her people, the Jews, were under threat by this wicked man named Haman who had devised this, this plot to, to exterminate all the Jews. Esther, the queen, could go to the king and appeal to him on behalf of the people, but if she did, she was risking her life because the king, if he wasn't in a good mood, could just you know, take her life. She could be executed. But Mordecai, Mordecai her uncle, came to her and said this, said Esther in, in Esther 4.14, If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. In other words, Esther, God is not dependent solely upon you, but but he can use you in a powerful way. Will you step up to the plate? Will you do your part? And Esther did, and the nation was saved, and, and one person made a difference. You too can make a difference. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. So as we close, this is what we need to do. Take Jesus' words seriously. Be the representative that he's called us to be. As I said, this world needs light because it's dark. And the world needs salt because it's corrupt. We live in a dark time culturally. But if you think it's bad right now, and it is, just wait until the Lord calls us, his people, home at the rapture of the church. 
it certainly gives a logical explanation as to how things can become dark so quickly as we read about them during the tribulation period. We read about the violence even worse than it is today, murders and stealings. We read about sorcery and drug use and all of the wicked, dark things that will happen. Right now, we as a church, we're the restraining force. We, we stop things from even getting worse because we stand up and say, that's wrong, that shouldn't be. But there's coming a day when Christ will, will call us out of here and then there'll be darkness on the third earth such as there's never been up until this time. That's why right now, in the time that we have, we need to be salt and light. Because if we don't do it, that's not going to happen. We need to take this seriously and go wherever we can, be the salt and light, and try to make a difference in our culture. But even more so than that, if you're here this morning, right now, the most important time for you, if you don't know Christ, is to make a decision for Christ. See, the Bible says that when we come to Christ, we turn from darkness to light, from the, from the power of Satan to God. Now, if you don't know Christ this morning, I want to give you that opportunity to know Him today as your Lord and Savior. So as soon as service is over, as soon as we get done here, we'll do a final song. If you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, come up and talk to one of the elders. We'll be up here. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to give you a Bible and let you know what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Have a relationship with Him. Because you can't be a light and salt if you don't have a power source. The power source is Jesus Christ. And for us as believers... Stay plugged into the power source, plugged into his word, plugged into fellowship together, being led by his spirit, and God will use each one of us mightily. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your word and the illustrations that you give us, uh, Lord Jesus, and how to live in this dark world. Lord, help us to be that salt that you've called us to be, Lord, that that uh, restraining force, that, that, that uh, uh, Lord... Uh, uh, the, the pursuit, uh, preserving, Lord, uh, uh, the way things that need to be, Lord, stopping the, the spread of, of, of evilness, Lord, in our culture. Lord, help us to produce a thirst in, in the world around us that they want what we have, Lord, that they're thirsty for the things that, that you have, Lord, the living water that only you can, can satisfy. Lord, help us as we share our faith with those around us that we uh, come to them on their level, Lord. And by the power of your spirit, we reach them with the words you'd have us to share with them. Father, help us to be the light you've called us to be. Lord, finally, if there's anyone here, Lord, that has not given their life to you, they're not born again, I pray, Lord, that you especially touch their heart today. They would see their need for you and they would come to you this morning. Confess their sin, confess their guilt, confess them living in darkness and want to live in the light. All our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Is there anyone here this morning you want to do that this morning? You want to get right with God? You want to be born again? You want your sin forgiven? You want to know if the Lord would come back for His church that you would go to be with Him? If that's your desire, would you just raise your hand so I can pray for you this morning? This is just between you and the Lord. I wanted to just give you that opportunity to give your life to Jesus Christ. Anybody at all? Maybe you're here and, and you haven't been walking with the Lord and, and uh, you know that and the Lord's kind of been pouring salt on your wounds all during the study. kind of stinks. God's touching your heart. wants you to get back right with Him, to recommit your life to Him and, and knowing Him and serving Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you this morning? Anybody at all?
So Lord, thank you for our time. Thank you for how great you are, Lord. Help us to go out of here, Lord, uh, like Moses, with the light just bursting forth from us, Lord, your light, Lord, shining in people's faces. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.